This podcast series is not meant for retail investors, but instead is meant for financial advice and investment professionals. Please refer to IMAP's website, imap.asn.au, for more details. Welcome to this podcast in the IMAP Independent Thought Series. Today, I'm joined by Susan Chenoweth and Linda McKee. They are both from Elston. Susan is the head of philanthropic services at Elston, and Linda is an advisor and a director of Elston. So today, we're going to talk about why it's important for advisors to speak to clients about philanthropy and how they should go about it. Now, ladies, uh, philanthropy is becoming increasingly a topic of interest to clients, it seems, from some of the work you've done. Why do you think that is? Why is it becoming something that, that's becoming more front and centre in conversations? Mm. Well, thanks, David. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Um, we, I think there, there's definitely growing demand um, for assistance with philanthropy, and I think there are a few reasons for that. Um, I mean, we know wealth is escalating in Australia uh, and you know, of course, that will only continue with this unprecedented um, wealth transfer that will be happening over the next 40 years. But we actually in Australia have the fastest growing affluent bracket in, in the world. And so, you know, with more affluence, with more wealth, uh, it gives individuals and families um, the greater capacity to engage in philanthropy um, once they, they know that they have sufficient capital to take care of their own needs and the needs of their families, um, then often they will turn their mind to the community sector and, and who else they can support, um, what is what what is their legacy, what is the purpose of their wealth. Um, and Australia is a generous nation. 80% of Australians give. Um, so for an advisor who has high net worth clients, uh, it's very likely that um, many of them have thought about charitable giving or setting up a tax-effective foundation, uh, and it's quite possible that they are already actively giving back to areas that they care about. Um, I think the other factor is that there are a growing range of tax-effective giving structures available in Australia. Around 20 years ago, we, we had the the onset of private ancillary funds, and um, they have grown in popularity, and, and we see hundreds of these being set up every year in Australia. Uh, but there are other ways to give through public ancillary funds with as little as twenty thousand dollars. So, um, structured giving is accessible to to more people than ever before. That's interesting. I mean, we could probably talk a little bit about the structures later, maybe. And initially, though, I mean, as you mentioned, people wealth's growing in Australia. We're becoming more affluent, so people do think about giving. But and yet, I know the work you've done suggests that it's something advisors seem to find difficult to raise with their clients, or they they don't talk about it. Um, why do you think that's the case? Why are advisors reluctant given, as you've said, you know, a lot of high net worth clients probably are thinking about it? Yeah, I think that that can be quite complex. I think we do know from a lot of research that's been done, not just in Australia, but around the world, 
that um, advisors sort of state two reasons why they they don't always engage in those conversations. Um, firstly, they say they they lack the knowledge of the philanthropic structures, um, the philanthropy landscape in Australia. So they don't want to understandably embark on giving advice or initiating conversations in areas that they don't know a lot about or feel comfortable talking about. Um, But the second reason that they state is that they they often feel quite unsure about how to approach the conversation with their clients. Um, We have done at Elston some preliminary uh, research with our own advisors and we and we soon we're actually um, broadening out this research to the broader ad- advice sector in Australia and one thing that seems to be standing out for us too is is actually the role that the advisor sees that they play f- um, for their clients I think advisors who uh, who are very um, Technical focus very much on their technical expertise as a financial advisor. Focus on um, wealth creation and investments. Don't always sort of look beyond that sort of role. Uh, but then there are other advisors who would probably see themselves as their client's trusted advisor, who probably approach those relationships a bit more holistically. Um, They may not have deep expertise in philanthropy or, or for that matter, estate planning or, or, um, you know, business tax law, but they see themselves as the director of those broader relationships for their clients so that they can um, more broadly look after their clients' needs. And I think it's those advisors that do tend to have those philanthropy conversations with their clients. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, IMAP has done a, a survey on firms that work with high net worth clients, and we, we're going to put out a white paper soon that, that came from that. And I, certainly a lot of the feedback we got in that was that the high net worth and, and certainly the ultra high net worth clients are looking for sort of full service, as you've said. You know, it's not just should I be conservative or growth with my investments, but looking after family matters, philanthropy, um, estate planning, all those different things. That's interesting. Absolutely. And I know working, you know, really closely with Linda on and with a number of her clients who, um, you know, you definitely take that approach, don't you, Linda? Yes. Well, thank you, uh, David, for inviting me along today. Susan and I have worked um, on um, a couple of my clients, um, quite a few actually, and it really does resonate with me um, because I've, you know, obviously been on this journey of discussing this, bringing this topic up with um, my clients. And at the beginning, I can really you know, sympathise and empathise with advisors who are reluctant. I do believe it does come down to those same two areas that um, Susan has talked about. Um, but once once you have a basic understanding, you don't need to know everything because you're obviously going to engage with a specialist. Um, it's It comes down to that second point about how do I actually even have this conversation and and how how would I bring this up with a client when potentially I, I may see myself as that's a really awkward conversation because um, 
I'm suggesting to my client to give their money away and potentially they see me as somebody who's trying to make them money. Um, So it can be, I think for many advisors, an unusual kind of feeling. Am I actually suggesting to someone to give money away when I'm meant to be making the money? Um, But actually in reality, what you're doing is actually meeting their needs. And I just attended a conference actually and um, a leading advisor in New York who deals with ultra high net wealth and high net wealth clients used the the phrase, we are in the business of hopes and dreams. And that was something that really resonated with me because once you are working in a with clients with ultra high and high net wealth wealth positions, it does come down to what what is the purpose of all of this? How do I how do I actually bring meaning to my life, my children's life, what legacy am I leaving? So what Linda, what do you think I mean you've as you said you've done this successfully with a lot of your clients. What do you think you do differently then to these other advisors or is it just You've been doing it and you've slowly built up experience and know how to raise the conversation or a different approach or? Well, I think you learn as you're, as you're going. Um, and I tried a few things at the beginning and I went, oh, that just doesn't feel right. It doesn't, you know, sit well with me. Um, and it's not resonating. The client's just kind of sitting there looking at me blankly. So from that, I, I learned some, some ways of bringing it up when I, when I saw that the, the couple or the person sitting in front of me clearly had the means um, to to give. And I'll say one of the easiest discussion points or way to weave it in is, is in an estate planning discussion because you're already in the space about talking about legacy. You're already in the mindset of transitioning your wealth and what it's for, and where is it going, and how do you want to see that used. And so I find that for an easy win or an easy in, when you're talking about estate planning, that's um, quite a simple way of actually exploring um, areas of impact and leaving a legacy. Um, I find that probably quite a simple discussion yeah yeah that makes sense this sort of reminds me a little bit of something we heard as well about esg where we you know the feedback we got from a lot of the the people we talked to was that clients are all keen on esg but advisors are not raising it with them and it seems like we're hearing the similar sort of thing here that people are almost reluctant oh my client might not as you said i'm not going to tell them to give away money but perhaps it's something they're already thinking about that's that's interesting yes Often they are sorry they are already giving and but in a different different way. So um, some of the you know I guess key indicators when I look at my my client and I and I know their history. An advisor is in the absolute prime seat to know the journey of their client, and their life history, and their experiences is. Things like, you know, do I know that my client has experienced a personally, you know, 
troublesome time. For example, that one of their family has had a particular disease or they themselves have suffered some some kind of health setback and taught just exploring that a little more about what that journey was like for them would it was there anything that they would like to see done differently um, those types of things can lead to a conversation about making an impact and if they had the means how would they change somebody in a similar circumstances journey and then again it starts to broaden out well actually you could do that and they're like really I could do that yes you could so yeah, it's quite enlightening for many people. And I think that's, that's interesting. I was going to say, um, Susan, you know, we talked earlier about how much money you need because, I mean, we've talked to you about, you know, high net worth and, and very ultra high net worth people. But, Susan, I think, as you mentioned earlier, you don't necessarily have to have millions of dollars to be talking about giving in this way. No, not at all. Um, giving in through structures is really accessible to most people um, we and we can go into more detail about the structures but the ancillary fund structures in Australia are, are the most popular structures um, that that clients set up to to give through primarily because of the really significant tax advantages that can be achieved through setting through giving through an ancillary fund but Typically, you would need at least a million dollars in donations to set up a private ancillary fund. But most people don't realise that to set up a sub-fund in a public ancillary fund, you you need oftentimes as little as $20,000 to set up that sub-fund. And for clients who might want to dip their toe in the water with $1,000 or $5,000. Around Australia, there are many different giving circles or community foundations which offer clients the opportunity to give collectively with others and start to experience that more structured approach to giving with much smaller amounts. So it's really something that you you don't need to be super wealthy to be able to give in a structured way and to access all of those benefits, um, often tax deductions for donations into giving structures, but also, of course, that opportunity to to give back because in essence um, giving is is always a, a very personal act and it's always linked to um, a client's life journey or as Linda said um, things that their family or themselves have been affected by or touched by and it's an opportunity for them to to give back to support those kind of things I think the other um, really interesting um, point that has been uncovered with much of the research around advisors and their role with philanthropic giving thus far is that, quite simply, the clients do want you to talk to them about their giving. Um, When asked, high net worth individuals 
have said that the number one person outside of their their spouse um, that they would look to for advice and guidance around their giving is their trusted advisor, their financial advisor. So your clients want to have that conversation with you and they do look to their advisor for for guidance uh, around, you know, what, what are their options in terms of giving structures and how can they go about setting those up. So do you think, Ellen, Linda, maybe it's more a question for you, but do you think there's an, it's an education thing that the advisors are not sure how these ancillary funds and the like work, what the tax benefits are, et cetera, or is it more the, as you've just been talking about, you know, having the conversations about what would you like to do with your money, you know, is there, yeah. do you want to give or is it a bit of both? Or I think it starts with knowledge, because you're not going to be, feel confident to, to even broach the subject if you know nothing about it. Um, so I think it does start with some knowledge. It doesn't take long to build that knowledge. Susan's run so many multiple, you know, little workshops at, at Elston. And really, you know, in a matter of 30 minutes, you could get a very good understanding um, of the kind of structures that are available and the, the flexible tax benefits from those uh, as well. So it certainly doesn't take long to upskill yourself um, if you're talking to the right kind of people. Um, so I do think it starts with the knowledge and then it's about, you know, probably also having a bit of training on how to weave this conversation into a client meeting without waiting for a client to bring it up because it's unlikely all the clients that I've got that are that that have actually set up um, philanthropic structures or sub funds um, it wasn't something that most of them actually brought up with me it was through these these couple of different um, ways of weaving it into a conversation or my knowledge about their personal experiences that it's occurred. So I, I definitely think it starts with knowledge and um, and then a little bit of training and thinking about how you might bring that up. If I could add to, I think it also, <clears throat> it's all about also about understanding the triggers, um, the trigger events that a client might be going through that um, often will prompt them to want to think about giving back. And that might oftentimes, and I know, Linda, a lot of your clients have been in this position, it might be a, a, a significant, cap, significant capital gain or realisation of capital. Yes. Um, so there is a liquidity event that means that they they might have thought about giving back for many years. And in fact, I, we often see this clients who've thought, you know, they'd love to be able to support a certain thing or, or establish a, a certain structure. But it's not until the trigger event happens and perhaps they sell a business or there's a divorce settlement or an inheritance that it actually gives them the means to act on that desire. So for advisors to understand um, what those trigger events are that might often prompt a client to think about giving, is really helpful. As Linda mentioned, just basic training on the, on the fundamentals of philanthropy, the most common structures and the benefits, 
Um, but then, you know, and I would say thinking about, well, how do we incorporate this into our advice practice? Um, do we want to really upskill and have very trained advisors of our own or do we want to look at an alternative solution that involves partnering, just like you would at partner with an estate planning specialist, you might partner with a philanthropy specialist to be able to call on their guidance and expertise when you do have a client who um, wants to give. So an advisor doesn't need, they need to know a little bit, they don't need to know everything. Can I ask, is there a particular type of client that tends to want to get involved in philanthropy more? You know, is it women rather than men, old people versus young people, or is it an across-the-board thing, Linda? What's been your experience there? Um, in my experience, it is across the board. Um, I do have a specialty in assisting mostly women to negotiate property settlements, um, divorce property settlements. And that journey often is, um, you know, quite transformational journey um, in that, uh, you know, after a property settlement, they may be feeling a little bit lost in terms of purpose. Um, also, uh, might be the first time they've actually got control over some financial decisions and um, have been wanting to do something um, with impact or, you know, and have felt as though it wasn't really, you know, their their option to, d to make decisions like that. Um, I've got clients who have had, you know, significant capital gain event and the subject has come up um, alongside of, oh, gosh, that's a lot of tax to pay. What are my options? And so we've actually talked about, well, actually, you know, I know you went through that cancer journey. Have you ever thought about, you know, what was it about that? And she's like, oh, well, we're talking about my cancer journey. And then we're talking about all the different um, services that she access during that time. And she said, you know what, I'd always really wanted to give some money to this particular group that really supported, I know supports a lot of women in the community. Um, and I said, well, this, this is probably a really good opportunity to do that because it's a win for you in that you'll be paying less tax and you're putting it to, to really good use that has a lot of personal meaning for you and you know that, you know, you can go and see that um, money put to good use. So that's probably two categories. So I've had, you know, um, retiring couples, so medical specialists who have been very passionate about their particular area of specialty, retired, very comfortable and wanting to get involved in the philanthropic kind of community and and see um, progress in certain medical fields. Um, also, we do find that younger generations are more interested in impactful giving um, or making an impact, and that kind of weaves into that um, ESG kind of conversation as well. It's much more prominent in their thinking. Okay. Um, Susan, maybe just uh, as we get towards the end of our chat, perhaps a little bit on the structures. And I know particularly you you mentioned there about the public ancillary funds that people can access. I mean, is that something a, a firm like an Elston offers and 
how does that work and how do you access those? Yeah, we do. We set up the Elston Giving Foundation a couple of years ago now for this very reason, to be able to offer a, a very cost-effective, um, well-run public ancillary fund uh, that gives people who do want to give lesser amounts, they don't want to set up their own private ancillary fund, but they might want, for, for a number of reasons, they might want to start with a, a lower amount. And, and as we talked about, that sub funds can be set up through the Elston Giving Foundation with as little as $20,000. Um, but sometimes they just don't want the the headache of another structure to run or the, resp- the governance responsibilities of setting up their own fund. So a public ancillary fund can be a really convenient option for clients who just want to focus on the giving as well. So they're quite similar to private ancillary funds in that they have a corporate trustee, um, but you could probably liken the two different structures to, um, say, private ancillary fund would be similar to a self-managed super fund. A client would set up their own trust and their own um, corporate trustee, and they would be responsible for all of the compliance and the governance associated with that, as opposed to setting up a an account within, say, an industry fund or a retail superannuation fund. Um, all of the investment, the admin, the compliance, and all of those responsibility are taken care of through the fund, the existing fund, and the client simply needs to set up an account um, so a sub fund where they can donate in, um, they can see that money grow in a tax-free environment in a with a long-term growth strategy and they can distribute um, the, a smaller amount each year out to charity. So typically, um, so private ancillary funds are required to distribute 5% of their balance of assets each year and a public ancillary fund is is similar, 4% of the assets. So you can see that when those investments within those funds are invested with a, a long-term growth strategy um, and and clients are distributing smaller amounts to charity each year, that corpus can actually grow and and be maintained in perpetuity so that that giving becomes a, a really key legacy for the, the family or their client. Hmm, interesting. That's a, that's a great description. I like that description with the, the SMF, SMSF versus industry fund. That makes it quite clear, actually. Yeah, that's good. All right. Look, I think we're coming to the end of our time. I've really enjoyed our chat and it's certainly a very interesting topic and one, as you said, that maybe advisors should be talking about a bit more. So it just remains for me to thank Susan Chenoweth and Linda McKee from Elston for joining us today. And finally, a reminder to keep an eye on the events page on the IMAP website for information on some upcoming webinars we have and also coming soon information on events we'll be organising in next year, 2024, which is not that far away. Thank you, ladies. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, David. It's a pleasure.